1: Hello and welcome to The Power Test, the political podcast that asks what Labour should do to win and change Britain for the better. I'm Aisha Hazarika.
2: And I'm Sam Friedman. And today we discuss what Labour's emphatic by-election wins mean for the party and ask if the case is still strong for tactical voting and cross-party collaboration.
1: Shortly, we'll be joined by the former president of YouGov, Peter Kellner, to get his view on the latest results, and by Neil Lawson, the chair of the centre-left pressure group Compass, who has advocated for a progressive alliance between Labour, the Liberal Democrats and the Green Party. Now, Sam, before we get on to our discussion, you've had quite a week because you, you join us and you look like you a bit of a, a Vincent van Gogh has been going on. Tell us about you what's know, I've happened. I've got a
2: big bandage on my ear. It was even worse before. A big white thing wrapped around my ear uh, I had a bit of surgery last week I had a little bit of skin cancer on my ear which needed to be taken off which by the way everyone should check uh, if you've got a little kind of thing on you that isn't healing then do get that checked out by a doctor and are you um,
1: all, all, is it all well it's all good. good it's been good, all removed
2: good. I just will have a weird bandage on my ear for a few weeks but I'm sure I can cope with that but
1: uh, but what was so impressive is that as you were um, having your operation your your dedication to, to tweeting did not did not slow down
2: no no I, I, I live tweeted the operation <laughs> I had previously, when I had a different operation for a different problem, I came out of a coma and within an hour I tweeted. So I've already had the record, <laughs> I believe, for tweeting fastest when out of a coma. So I wanted to, to then kind of even go one up on that by by live tweeting an operation, which I did until the doctor told me to put my phone away because I was jiggling too much or he was trying to cut the thing out of my ear. So Total a True phone commitment addiction. To, 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 phone to, 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 addiction.
1: To, to. Um, so lots going on in politics. We've been celebrating one year of, of Rishi Sunak. I say celebrating, <laughs> I wonder if he's... Muted celebration. Muted celebration. I don't know how much Mexican coke he's had as a, as a small treat. I mean, it has really been a stinker of a year. I do remember when he was on the steps of Downing Street a year ago and thinking, actually, you know, as somebody of, of British Indian you know, heritage, I was like, this is, this is exciting. This is a big moment. And I thought he's going to be so much better than... Liz Truss, although that's not difficult, and Boris Johnson. And I thought, you know, his speech on the steps of Downing Street was very good, you know, accountability, professionalism, integrity, trust, and it's kind of gone a bit downhill.
2: Well, I wrote a piece when he took over saying that if he wanted to have much of a chance of Winning the the election and and he needed to differentiate differentiate himself immediately from Boris Johnson and his trust. He needed to attack them strongly and make it clear that he was a strong change from them. And he just never did that. He never took the chance to clearly say, "I am a different kind of leader," not just in words but in the kind of actions that he took. In p- putting Braverman into that the cabinet that was that. such a big mistake. I understand why he did it for party management reasons and to ensure that he beat. Boris Johnson in that leadership election. But it was such a big mistake because it, it undermined everything he was saying to the audience that he might have had appeal to. And and, and that's also just, on,
1: on the day he did that, he was at the height of his powers.
2: He could have done. He, could he have, was at
1: the height of his powers. It was a powers, moment of
2: weakness and it's cost him huge. And weight. he
1: brought her back. And who dominated Tory party conferences right. here? Who was the darling of conference? It was not Rishi Sunak. It was Suella Braverman. Everybody is looking forward now to probably a Conservative opposition led by probably I think Suella Braverman but she's going to be a, a huge influence I mean can you think of one positive th- I'm just trying to think of just trying to give, find some but grasp well as I mean balance. he isn't
2: Liz Truss Liz Truss was worse I mean let's be honest that's true Boris Johnson was worse Boris Johnson too. was worse you could make an argument that whilst as a person and as a sort of in terms of his organi- personal organisation, he's better than Boris Johnson, his policy agenda is actually further right-wing than Boris
1: Johnson. I just feel for him, he really... It's a classic example of somebody who's been catapulted into a really big job in politics when they don't really know who they are politically. Like, I think in his soul... He can't work out if he is incredibly right wing or if he is incredibly sort of one nation on, on some things. And I think the lack of just any coherence in what he says. One mm. day he's like, we're going to be really against the nanny state. Then The next day he's like, right, we're banging uh, smoking, which is not even a problem now. You know, it's just all over the place. There's no kind of there's no intellectual or political coherence. No, there's no Sunakism.
2: Yeah, um, and in order to have anism, you need a much longer period of time. You really need to have been in opposition as leader to develop that kind of worldview. He was just—he's th- been thrown in so fast to the sharp end of politics. He's never had time to develop any of that. And yeah, it really shows. So we had these two by-elections last week in Mid Beds. Labour's Alastair Strathen won the seat uh, with a just over 1,000 majority, overturning Nadine Doris's 2019 majority of almost 25,000, which is the biggest majority Labour have ever overturned ever in history, which is quite extraordinary. And they also won up in Tamworth, where Sarah Edwards, the Labour candidate, overturned a majority of just under 20,000. And today, today we're going to be talking to Peter Kellner, one of my personal heroes, being as I'm a massive polling nerd, and he has been <laughs> one of the leaders of the pack of polling nerds for a He's very like the long big time. Daddy of polling. The big daddy of polling nerds, although some this say about
1: John Curtis. They're both
2: quite. They're, they're both. They're, they are the kind of leaders of the pack now. So very excited to have him on, uh, and also Neil Lawson, who uh, is going to talk, talk to us about this sort of idea of a progressive alliance. But I did actually want to ask you about the by-elections before we get to them. Labour had phenomenal by-election wins, and I'm going to preface this by saying there's a bit of. An on-running thing on this show, a lot of you and quite a few of the people who help us put this program together, are Labour members have worked for the party, and you just you have been so much more nervous for the past year about Labour actually winning this thing than I have. I keep saying, "Oh, Labour are definitely going to win," and everyone flinches in horror. At this sort of <laughs> me taking it for granted, and there's sort of this pain of 1992 and 2015 ingrained into everyone. Do you now accept Labour are going to win this damn thing?
1: Do you know Sam? There's still a long way to go. Look, fin- you're so unmessy. So, I love it. No, I'm not just on message. I have the scars on my back of 2015. Where the only scenario we didn't prepare for was a Tory majority. Right? Okay. I am. I am so triggered by this. But. Credit where credit's due. I mean, Labour has done phenomenally well. And remember, there was the the Rutherglen and Hamilton West just Mm. going into that. And and Labour is showing that they are winning phenomenally all across the the country. Selby and and Ainsley was Mm. a phenomenal um, result as well. What I'm really interested and impressed by is, and I know some people might balk at this, but there has been such a sort of sharpening up of the operation, such a kind of oomph in the professionalism at every single level of the party. Now, some people might kind of moan and go, oh, my God, that's so boring. But I'm afraid if you want to win mm. against a very big Tory majority with lots of the media against you and, and lots of things against you, you have got to be really, really organised. But, but Sam... We are a long way. I think we're not going to have an election until December of next year or even January. So a lot can happen at that time. Well, I, I wrote a piece
2: in um, spring 2022 saying I thought there was going to be a Labour majority before anybody else got to it. So I'm, I'm still I'm still very much more positive than anybody else. But let's see what our guests have to say about it.
1: Joining us to discuss the latest by-election results and the case for cross-party collaboration are the commentator and former president of YouGov, Peter Kellner. Hello, Peter. Hi, Asia. And the chair of left-wing pressure group Compass and advocate for a progressive alliance, Neil Lawson. Neil, welcome.
3: My pleasure to be here.
1: Now, Peter, I'll start with you. I mean, a really stunning set of by-election results for the Labour Party. And, of course, this is um, in addition to Rutherglen and Hamilton West, which happened just before uh, Labour Party conference. What's your assessment of what these results do for Labour?
0: They're incredibly good for Labour. And it's interesting that the one thing the Tories say in response, which is, and it's true, Tory voters stayed at home. And what the Tories are saying is, in a general election, they'll all come back. But do you know, we here will remember the Dudley West by election. This was 1994. And guess what? The Tories stayed at home. And the Tories said then, this isn't a swing to Labour. This is Tories staying at home. They'll come back in the general election and vote for us. Guess what? Labour landslide. So the by elections do look very much like the mid-1990s. That doesn't mean it'll play out exactly as it did then, but if one is looking for historical comparators, it's the 1990s.
2: And what's really interesting about this one is quite unusually we have an almost direct comparator because the seat that was Tamworth before, South East mm. Staffordshire, had a by-election in 1996, a year before the 97 election, and the swing was actually slightly lower in 96 than it was this time. So it's quite hard now, I think, to say that Starmer is in a worse position to, to Blair in 96 possibly even in a marginally better one
0: uh, yes uh, let me put a couple of qualifications in it is actually true that Dudley West apart Tories are staying at home now more than they did then there was probably slightly more actual switching in by-elections in that Parliament um, than now turnouts were higher in those by-elections and also Labour's opinion poll lead is not now not as high as as it was what we've got and it, it, it's I, I find this fascinating the Tory level of support is much the same as it was under John Major in those year or two leading up to 97. But the anti-Tory vote then was overwhelmingly Labour. It is now more widely split. So the Tories were mid to high 20% then, they're mid to high 20% now, but Labour then was mid-50s, it's now mid-40s. So my current best guess, and at this stage it's only a guess, is that Labour will win or at least Labour will be in government after the next election. I'd be surprised if the majority is as big as it was under Tony Blair.
1: OK, that's just a really important point just to, to, to pause on for a moment. So when we began this podcast in the first series, the question is, was, you know, do we think Labour can get over the line in terms of basically passing the mm. first part of any power test? Can you get into to government? Mm. You're now saying that, you know, you've studied the numbers. You think that's going to happen now?
0: I, I think it is. and uh, Let me make two points on this. The first is the question, who will be in Downing Street a year, a, a week or two weeks after the election? Labour doesn't even need to be the largest party for Keir Starmer to become prime minister. As with the first question about the next election is will there be a pro-Tory or an anti-Tory majority? To be a pro-Tory majority, it's the Conservatives and practically nobody else, maybe five or six uh, democratic unions from Northern Ireland, maybe not even them. The anti-Tories will be Labour, Liberal Democrats, SNP, you know, Greens, two or three MPs from Northern Ireland, STLP Alliance, and so on. And so as long as there is an anti-Tory majority, there will be an anti-Tory prime minister. But the second part of my answer is, well, but what does Labour need to win outright, an overall majority? And my view has changed in the last few months. After the last election, up to some months ago, um, the prevailing wisdom was for Labour to go from you know, a couple of hundred seats to 326 it needed a swing of 12 percentage points. However, two things have happened this year that have changed our mind. The first is that the SNP have imploded in Scotland. And whereas Labour a year ago, You might win two, three, perhaps five seats. It's now perfectly possible it'll win 20, 25, even 30. The other thing is that tactical voting, which we've started to see last year and the year before, especially um, in favour of the Liberal Democrats, is now working ferociously for Labour. So, for example, in Rutherglen, which Labour won, no surprise, the size of his victory was astonishing. And a part of that was the Tory vote in Rutherglen collapsed. There was unionist tactical voting for Labour there. In England, in all the recent Tory defended seats, there's been ferocious tactical voting with either the Labour or the Lib Dem vote collapsing to the other, which is why we had these very big swings, these very big Labour and Lib Dem victories. And the one exception uh, was the latest by-election in mid-Bedfordshire, which unusually both Labour and the Lib Dems fought hard. Labour still won, but they didn't win as much, by as much as they would have done had the Lib Dems not bothered. But let me just say one thing in terms of the next general election. This is a very unusual situ- situation. If you look at the all the marginal and semi-marginal seats that the Tories hold, the ones that will be in contest, and I was not, I'm not talking about all, all 360, but let's just say the 100, 150 Tory seats where you might conceivably see them in trouble, I reckon there are only four constituencies where there is any doubt as to whether it's a Labour target seat or a Lib Dem target seat. So, in a general election, the Mid Bedfordshire issue
1: will it, it, that's that's not barely be, apply. It, it's not going to be such mm. a such a big issue. Neil, let's bring you in at this point. Now, you're quite a big fan of the sort of Progressive Alliance tactical voting. Actually, before we get to that, what what did you make of these by-election results? First of all, let's start with that.
3: They're obviously very good for Labour, and I'm you know we're pleased that uh, what we would call a progressive tragedy didn't happen in Mid Beds. A progressive tragedy is where the progressive vote adds up to more than the conservative vote, but it splits and you let the conservatives through, and that happens you know relentlessly through our political history. Every election since 79, there's been huge numbers of these progressive tragedies. Actually, 1979, Mrs Thatcher would not have won if the progressive vote was consolidated and and distributed effectively across progressive parties. There wouldn't have been anything like Thatcherism. It's usually something between 40 and 140 seats are lost in terms of these progressive tragedies, and mid-beds could have been won. It only narrowly wasn't won by a thousand odd votes, but it could have been. And that can happen again at the next election. There are huge numbers of seats where the progressive vote could be bigger than the regressive vote, and yet the progressives lose because the vote is split. What was interesting about the Beds vote was at the moment the the tragedies are on the regressive side. You know that the 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 Reform UK vote was bigger than the Labour majority. Now, now that can be reversed, as it was before 2019, where Reform UK do a deal with the Conservative Party and stand down, and so the regressive vote is consolidated really effectively. Now, you know we don't know whether that's going to happen again, but you know, and given the other by-elections that have been going on, like Uxbridge you know there labor could have won Uxbridge if the greens had not contested the seat so heavily because the green vote was bigger than the tory majority there by some considerable distance now this doesn't mean just standing aside or not contesting it is going to make all the difference but it does send all the right signals that there is some kind of progressive collaboration because at the moment it's all smoke and mirrors between the parties and they're not being clear you know as as has happened in the past like 1997 so there's an electoral case for this stuff maybe we can get into the political case, which is stronger than ever, I think, about the platform you stand on to win through a progressive alliance style politics or under first past the post politics.
1: Are you advocating for parties themselves to do a deal with each other or are the electorate smart enough? to work out how to do it themselves how to vote tactically without there being a, a deal of some sort
3: Well what, I mean that begs the question What is there something wrong with doing a deal is there something wrong with progressive parties talking together working together, finding out what they have in common in terms of values and policies to say we should collaborate more effectively. Why stand a candidate at all who's just going to draw some numbers towards them whatever you do and let the Conservative through because the idea is to form a progressive alliance to win on the terms of a progressive alliance and then enact proportional representation so you don't have to do those smoke and mirror deals at all in the future because the, the you know the bizarre thing we have going in our politics is that Keir Starmer wants people to vote tactically. Ed Davey wants people to vote tactically, but they won't say what they want because somehow they think it makes them look weak. The problem is our electoral system and the way it divides votes and the way it discounts 70% of our votes. We have to get rid of that and allow every vote to count. As soon as we do that, that doesn't magic in a progressive world, but it does give a clear platform because the point about First Past the Post is that to win under it, you have to go to Rupert Murdoch and say we're not going to change anything. You have to go to the city and say we're not going to change anything to the big donors and to the very few swing voters in a few swing seats who are the barometers of every election you have to say we're not going to change very much don't worry. So that then you get in as a progressive force with no mandate to change anything. But if you consolidated the progressive vote which has been a majority at every election and I'm not saying that's easy it's a job to be done and give those clear signals to people then you can win on a progressive basis, and then you can start changing things, as well as enacting PR. You can start doing the, you know, the wealth distribution and all the rest of it. Winning under first past the post, you're building a cage out of your victory, and this is what I'm going to. This is what I'm worried about with any kind of Labour victory of whatever size that you've done it with a mandate that doesn't allow you to change anything.
2: There are several challenges that are put towards this idea which we can come to but but the most obvious one to me seems to be the parties hate each other like if you look at what happened in mid-beds the the Labour and Lib Dem campaigns were viciously attacking each other all the way through and it wasn't for the cameras they you know talk to them behind the scenes they were really pissed off with each other and I don't think that was just about mid-beds there is genuinely in the Labour Party in my experience a kind of disdain for Liberal Democrats and sort of not, not, not going the whole hog, not being proper progressives, and a kind of disdain from Liberal Democrats towards Labour that they're sort of overly ideological or sold on actually quite illiberal policies, particularly on, on sort of crime and, and, and immigration and so on. So I don't even know how you'd get to the point where you could get the parties round to agreeing to a deal when there just seems to be so much dislike between them as, as, as groups.
3: Well, let's get Peter in on, the, you know, what the kind of some of the numbers and practicalities of some of that mm-hmm. stuff. But in terms of the politics of it, so I would probably describe myself as a as a liberal socialist. What's the difference between that and a social liberal? Not very much at all actually. What's the difference between the policy platform that, you know, that the party stood on in 2019-2017? We've done the overlap. There's a massive overlap in terms of the policy connection between Labour, Liberal Democrats and Greens. They're broadly heading in the same direction. They might do different strokes in terms of how they're swimming towards you know, the same destination but there's a massive overlap. There's complementary differences. That's a good thing. You know, Liberal Democrats are more interested in civil liberties. They might be more pro-European. Greens might be more environmental. That can chime really well and create a bigger ecosystem with Labour which is more statist and that's a good thing. So all those things can come together. Look at the conversion of the Labour Party membership to PR. That is a massive seismic cultural shift in the attitude of Labour people to pluralism, to working together. Of course, the machines at the top in an adversarial winner-takes-all, first-past-the-post system, try and destroy any opponents. And we have got a politics of competition when we should mostly have a politics of cooperation. When you look at the big challenges we've got on environment, on inequality, on AI, you're going to need big long term consensus to deal with this stuff not adversarial short term winner takes all stuff so at the top there's real intransigence the two knights are not clearly not getting on very well but people can do go back to 97 the way blair and, and ashdown got on the deals that they did the talks that they had there's not a lot of difference let's work on what we have in common let's build on that and then let's address the big challenges the country faces
1: so Just before we bring um, Peter in, I mean, it's really interesting just coming back from Labour Party conference because for the last few years... This idea of a progressive alliance has gathered a lot of, of traction. I've chaired lots of events on proportional representation and, and the unions are much more in favour of mm-hmm. this now. And The, the leadership is not. It's, it has to be said. Keir Starmer's made it really clear. He's made that clear to me personally. He's made it clear. And I think after that glitter bomb boy happened, he's probably because that was all about sort of uh, changing the voting system. So, But one of the arguments that I've had a lot against what you're saying is the electorates don't want backroom deals prior to a general election they want to be able to make up their minds for themselves what would you say to that
3: well firstly there has never been a Labour victory with a radical government from opposition into government and then people go 1945 well, we were already in government I go back to you you can't win a radical transforming government under first past the post Secondly, I don't think it should be backroom deals. I think it should be very upfront. I think the parties locally should be given the power to decide whether they stand a candidate or not. And rather than having them imposed on them. This could blow open politics in a really interesting way, which would let the electorate in, rather than this kind of you as, a, as an individual voter, you try and guess and work out how to use your vote for your least worst option. This is a horrible politics which drives people away from electoral politics because all they're doing is trying to game it themselves individually to try and work out what happens and, and it's a big turnoff. And actually the polls suggest that people want parties on a values basis to work together and cooperate they don't want stitched up deals for the sake of it but they do want people who believe in the same sort of things to work closely together they want cooperation they don't want kind of adversarial politics so i think we can open this all up really nicely let the public into it you know, and talk about very openly why we're doing this, why our electoral system disregards 70% of votes, why it gives a huge advantage to the Conservatives, 35,000 votes for every Conservative person, 50,000 for every Labour, 250,000 for every Liberal Democrat MP and 850,000 for any Green MP. It's completely undefensible and we could change it and we must change it.
1: Peter, let, let's bring you in. I mean, what do you think about Neil's argument and what do you think about the kind of numbers when it comes to tactical voting in a progressive alliance? Right, I
0: I disagree with part of Neil's analysis and agree with another part. But I disagree with... I, historically, I simply don't think you can say at every election since Queen Victoria was a baby there's, there have been more progressive voters than conservative voters, therefore we've been deprived of progressive governments you mentioned 1979, 1979. more people wanted a Margaret Thatcher-led government than a Callaghan-led Labour government. Sure, if you add together the Labour and Liberal votes, there were more of them than Tories. But you simply can't say all those Liberal voters, if there'd only been Labour-Tory contests everywhere, they would have all voted Labour. They wouldn't. Similarly, even more strongly in 1983, when you had the SDP broke away, so you had both Labour and the and the Liberal SDP Alliance, both with 26, 28 percent between them, 54 percent, and the Conservatives. I think it was 43 um, percent in '83. So there were many more Labour and less Liberal SDP voters than Conservative voters. When polls said, you know, "Who do you want as Prime Minister?" Margaret Thatcher or, M- or Michael foote a clear majority wanted Margaret Thatcher, including at least half of the liberal SDP voters. So I, I, I simply think it is arithmetically wrong to add those two together and say there's, all, there's you know, always been a progressive majority. As for tactical voting, I do think in practice at the moment that if you were to have overt Labour Lib Dem pacts with Labour standing down in some seats, Lib Dem standing down in the other, then what you would get, certainly for the Tories in Lib Dem areas where they're threatened by the Lib Dems, where Labour's very weak, the Tories would say, you know, this is a wolf in sheep's clothing if you vote. Lib Dem. You're going to get a left-wing Labour government. A bit reminiscent of the Alex
1: Salmon, Ed Miliband That's right, in 2015,
0: yeah. uh, Ed Miliband being Alex Salmon's pocket, allegedly. Now, this may or may not work. Um, But what does work is, A, voters these days, where they're reasonably happy between Labour and and the Lib Dem, most of them, not all of them. Tactical voting does take place. And you get, for example, in 1997, there was a private, an explicit private agreement between the Lib Dem and Labour parties in Hove and Lewis, that the Lib Dem activists in Hove would work in Lewis and the Labour activists in Lewis will work in Hove. Both Tory seats, Labour the clear challenger in Hove, the Lib Dems the clear challenger in in Lewis, they both fielded paper candidates in those seats. Voters did have a choice, but the Lib Dems did take Lewis, Labour did take Hove. And when that happens, you're not depriving people of, of a choice. So, so I, th- I have I a... Can I just jump in of, that? It, yeah.
1: And hasn't that kind of been going on? Because I've interviewed both mm. Keir Starmer and Ed Davey, mm. and I've put this question to them, Neil, that, you know, why don't you just be up front with people mm. and say, you know, you're going to do a deal. Mm. And, like, if you look at some of the by-elections, like Batley and Spen, there was hardly a Liberal Democrat yeah. around. And, you know, similarly, there was the other one where, like, there was hardly a Labour person. Around. But they've... Yeah, North Shropshire. But they kind of fielded a candidate in need. Yeah. And what both sirs said to me was... Look, we're not doing a formal deal, but we will see... We only have a finite amount of resources, mm-hmm. so we are going to use our resources strategically. Yep. Dot dot dot. Neil, so isn't that kind of happening? which is a fi- which
3: is fine for by-elections and it can work in by-elections. But in they a gen- said that for general elections. In a general as well. election, it's very different. And how do you send those signals? And what happened in the run-up to '97? Because I helped broker it. There was very clear information between two sides on on w- where they were going to concentrate their fire. Back then, it was a list that was published in the Mirror, which said if you're this seat, you vote Labour. And if you're this seat, you vote Liberal Democrat. But then more than that, Ashdown and Blair spoke a lot and were seen together a lot. We had the Cook-McLennan agreement over democratic reform. The grids were shared over the election. So there was a kind of pincer movement against the Tories. It was very clear. It was very orchestrated. It was very well organised. And in places like Tatton, You know, Martin Bell against the kind of sleazy, whoever it was, you know, uh, Tory MP, um, Hamilton, you know, they both stood down candidates in that seat and allowed an independent
0: to to run for it. So it's very big, very clear. But Neil, can I just, it seems to me that you're putting the cart before the horse. I think the problem at the moment, and this is where I agree with you, is we need a progressive project, and I think what we and the progressive project, which we got halfway towards, as you say, with with Paddy Ashdown and, and Tony Blair, where there was they did both of them once to re, you know, repair the split that happened a hundred years earlier between the Labour and the Lib Dems, but that's not where we are now. Now, if we were to have a clear political project picking up where Tony Blair and Paddy Ashton left off, then I think electoral arrangements make sense as a consequence of a clear progressive project. But in the absence of an explicit progressive project, I think electoral deals are risky and as i say i think they're putting the cart before the i, horse. I, I agree with that
3: mm. and i think this should all be about what mm. sort of good society and good life are you mm. trying to create in the 21st century and i wish they were talking more about that mm. because then you've set up the desirable future and the progressive alliance is the means to get there mm. but I, I i totally agree and, with and that.
1: what's the danger if you're talking about like a shared political project and, and any like so this is me with my kind of you know, not Labour insider hat on, but my journalist hat on. As soon as we get wind that you know Keir Starmer and Ed Davey are are meeting in you know clandestine situations, our questions in the media to both Labour and the Liberal Democrats are not really going to be about this great progressive project. It's going to be about what's happening with proportional representation. That is going to be the only topic, and probably a bit of House of Lords reform as well.
0: Well, I, maybe I don't know whether Neil will agree with what I'm about to say or not. This is something which is much easier to do in government than in opposition, because in opposition the Conservatives can put forward all sorts of scare claims, as they did with Ed Miliband and Alex Hammond in 2015, and they will say to Lib Dem voters in rural areas, you know, wolf in sheep's clothing and all that. In governments, where you can show cooperation in some at some level then you can make the case of building on that cooperation. And I think it's much harder for the Tories to find that. It that didn't happen, out. of course, in 1997,
2: despite it, Blair and Ashdown kind and of having it, that agreement. And it
0: happened because Labour's majority, majority was so too big. big. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that you know, As I understand it, Paddy said to Tony, look, your majority is too big. It, it, it wouldn't work, a shared government. It would make the majority almost undemocratically big. So if one wants a progressive arrangement, one should be hoping for... A hung parliament or a small Labour majority where you will only get to a five-year parliament as opposed to what happened in 1964 and 74, where it's sort of a short-term Labour government in a second election. If Labour could construct a stable majority on a series of policies, on Europe, on social policy, on economic policy, on climate change and so on, and people see that working, then you can, you're starting down the road where the terminus could be a sort of full-blown progressive uh, it's alignments.
2: really hard to find that sweet spot, isn't it? Because in a hung mm. parliament situation or a very small majority, Labour get more defensive and they you know, probably thinking about another election in a year or two's time and everything gets more mm. political and harder to think long term. If you have a huge majority, you have the same problem Tony Blair did. Yeah. It's actually very, very hard in a first-past-the-post system to but find a sweet spot where it's worth doing this. What but that's about.
3: why you have to do it in, in principle, Sam. Mm. In principle, you believe that cooperation across people who broadly believe in the same thing is a good thing and the right thing for the country and i think we're in we're in a kind of e- either mid-30s, you know, or mid-70s kind of crisis moment. We're in the interregnum between the end of the first wave of neoliberalism and something new. We don't know what the something new is. This is where we're at now. Big, tumultuous stuff with climate, geopolitics, economics all over the place, huge distributional problems down the track. Politics is going to be in crisis for a while. So in those circumstances, how do left, centre and centre-left and progressive forces come together over the long term to build a consensus that can deal with all of those ravages, right? And that isn't a job just for government, and it's not just a job for opposition. Actually, you can talk a lot more in opposition. As soon as you get into government, you're into the crisis management of doing everything, and the headspace to move, you know, is, is really tight. Because the worry for us is that, you know, what's more likely to come down the track is the new populist right Not a democratic, egalitarian, you know, sustainable kind of politics. Because if we get in and we're not ready and we don't have the foundations intellectually of what that project is, if we haven't got the alliances, it won't work. The right will then come back in really quickly in a much nastier form. And that, you know, they've got energy, they've got cultural energy, intellectual energy, resource energy. And this is the worry that if we don't crack this thing now of bringing forces that broadly agree together now, then that's the next big turn for. British politics.
2: So I want to come in on on a point Peter made earlier about this. You can't really sort of add together numbers and say, well, there would always have been a progressive alliance. And if I look at what's happening in PR systems now in Europe. So I support PR, just to be clear. I think it's a fairer voting system, so I just support it on its merits, mm. not because it helps any particular party. But if you look at what's happened in Germany, say, you've had exactly what you've talked about, which is their Labour Party, SPD, the the their Green Party, and their sort of equivalent of the Liberal Democrats did go into an alliance after the last election, did go into a big coalition. And they're now incredibly unpopular. All three parties have taken a big hit. And you've got the AFD, this far-right German party, starting to even top some polls, which is really frightening. So in a way, like, PR hasn't, in that example delivered the the outcome you wanted, it's made all of those parties less popular and led to a, to, the, to the exact rise in that kind of right-wing populism that you're worried about happening well, here.
3: I, I I would say the problem with Germany is that they didn't build the intellectual and cultural alliance. It was a product of the election. And then they scrambled together and they put their different you know, programs together and they compromise or whatever. As Peter was alluding to, this has to be a big intellectual and cultural project over a long period of time. It can't just be the result of a, of a general election. PR is not a panacea. I don't believe it's a panacea. And, 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 a, and I, don't, I don't agree with Peter that you can't just look at the numbers and go, therefore, there's a, a progressive m- majority. It gives you the basis to work with, though, Peter. It says that there is a potential progressive majority there if you do the politics right. And
1: that's the raw politics that you're talking about, um, Neil, and I think that's probably something that we would all agree with. I think a lot of our listeners, because a lot of our listeners on the power test are not just Labour supporters, they're Liberal Democrats, they're Greens, they're soft Conservatives that mm. that want change. But let's look at the raw politics of this and the Labour Party. The Labour Party's in the ascendancy at the moment. They are actually becoming quite defensive on this point, And you have been in the eye of the storm recently, because You've been a, a Labour supporter for a long, long time. You have also advocated reaching out to other political parties, and you currently are. Am I right? You're still under suspension from the Labour Party. No, so I'm.
3: I'm. I'm still a member of the party, but I've been sent a, a, a letter to say that my membership is being reviewed by the National Executive Committee because I've advocated, in effect, cross-party working. So I'm, I'm on the naughty step. I think they probably feel like they may have overreached a bit with me. And they actually, you know, both in terms of what I stand for and, you know, who I know and my position within the party, but also because of the instance they brought up. I was just saying that people working together was a sign of grown-up politics. They'll review it at some stage. I have a feeling they won't review it very
0: quickly. May I just check? The facts of it—I i may have got this wrong, so this—I'm—you is I'm, I'm, me, you can correct me—that as I understand it, the specific thing was you commended a tweet uh, that Leila Moran, the Liberal MP in Oxford, sent out, where the Lib Dems and Greens were cooperating in a ward election for Oxford um, City Council, and you said that's growing up politics. The problem, as I understand it, is that it was uh, in a ward that Labour was defending, and the purpose of the Liberal Green Alliance was to defeat an incumbent Labour councillor. So it wasn't like you were recommending a a Libla pact to defeat a Tory. You were defending a Lib Dem, implicitly a Lib Dem Green pact to defeat Labour. Is that right? And if it is right, do you understand why in those circumstances, it isn't simply about cross-party cooperation, it was a threat to Labour in that instance.
3: Yeah, and if I'd clearly stated that I wanted people to vote against mm. the Labour candidate. I could understand why I've broken the rules. I understand the rules of the Labour Party, you know, pretty well. Mm. And I wasn't advocating voting against the Labour candidate you con- in that were you place. Con-
0: were you conscious in that instance that when you commended Leila Moran's tweet, I was... it, it, were you aware that, that, that it was a pact to fight Labour? No, I mean,
3: it's no defence to say that I wasn't aware, mm. but I wasn't aware. Right. But I was commending the principle mm. of, of progressives, you know, working together. I mean, the reason I was in favour of, Cooperation in Oxford is that Progressive Alliance politics had won Leila Moranzi away from the Conservatives, okay. and and what was being replayed there was that Green stood aside for Leila Moranzi so she could beat the Conservative, and this was a payback for the Liberal for the Greens oh. in that instance. Okay. And well, I think that general kind of cooperation, where it, it mostly benefits Labour, that's the point. If Labour came to the party, they would win a lot more seats in a lot more places if they played nicely with other people.
1: Sam, what do you think about this argument that Neil is making? And it is an argument that many of our listeners put forward to us. They do like the idea of working together. There's this strong, you know, anti-Tory feeling. You know, some of the feedback we get is, you know, why can't we see more cross-party working that Neil talks about? But parties are really against it. The Labour Party is really against it in its DNA. Mm. So
2: so in a way, I should be the perfect can- like um, person to, for this to appeal to. Right, I'm not a tribal... Member of any party. I'm not a member of any party. Um, I'm fed up with this government. Um, I want it to change. I agree with. you used a lot. to be a Tory. I used to. Well, I, I never actually joined the Tory oh. party. I just want to make that really. Well, it's all true. coming out now, isn't <laughs> it? It's all coming out now. Work, I did down. work for them. <laughs> I worked. Yeah, for them, yeah, but yeah. I did join the yeah, party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I understand the frustration with the kind of tribal sort of model of politics that, that Neil is talking about, and I also agree with him that we're at this sort of crossroads point in not just in Britain, in in every kind of developed democracy, where neither the left or right quite know where they want to go. And it does feel a bit like the kind of mid-70s or mid-30s in that sense. So So I get a lot of where you're coming from. I think the problem I have is, going back to what Peter said, we're just not in the place where the parties want to do this. So I just don't see how it happens. You know, they don't like each other. And it's quite... Probably, I think people didn't, wouldn't realise that unless they sort of talk to a lot of people in politics. You'd think both Labour and Tory would prefer the Liberal Democrats to each other because they're sort of in the middle of them. Actually, both Labour and Tory hate <laughs> the Liberal Democrats the
1: most because I don't know. There was they a point in Parliament last year when poor Julian Huppert, for some reason, every time he stood up in I Parliament, know. everyone just started groaning. So, so when the <laughs> mid
2: beds was, you know, mid beds, I had Tory MPs messaging me not complaining about the guy who won from Labour, saying they were, they, you know, the, the Lib Dem tactics of, you know, the fake bar charts and, the, you know, was winding them up. So th- th- there is a real dislike between all of our political parties. and At I don't top, know how Sam. you. I don't... Well, I'm not even sure it is the top. We're talking activists uh, here as well. Actually, activists sometimes, I, Neil. I disagree. Some activists so really I, I, you could
3: like tell Lib two Dems. stories. You could either tell the story of division or you could tell the story last May across the country in the local elections under the radar parties were collaborating standing aside not getting their nominations in working together there was a copycat thing going on across the country people now are much at the top of the parties i agree where their vested individual interest is in competition and doing the other side down people are much more plural their attraction the voters attraction and the activist attraction to these old party silos is all breaking down people on the ground against the wishes of the machine are collaborating under the radar this is happening the future will be plural.
0: I think the key thing, Neil, I'll say this, that what you're describing is, as it were, if people got around a blank sheet of paper and sat down as as a sort of intellectual process, I think it'd be quite easy to come up with a progressive project design. But politics is not that kind of first principles intellectual project. And it, it never has been. Realistically, all politics is contingent. What is happening now? What is the next contest coming up? What are, how do we win? How do we get ahead? And in those circumstances, the intellectual case for progressive allowed, with which I completely agree, it ought to happen, but it isn't going to happen. Let me turn this round. Let's imagine in 10 or 15 years' time, we were to gather in this studio, we'd all still be in our prime, and, <laughs> and there is a, a popular progressive project of the type you and I want – What has happened to bring that about? And I would say two things. One, absolutely necessary. There has been some kind of political upheaval, some political crisis that that has forced the parties to do this. Secondly, more speculatively, I think it will have happened in governments, probably a Labour government that is struggling to hold on, where it has needed a proper relationship with the Liberal Democrats in particular, perhaps also the Greens. And so the as with well, the contingency of politics comes together, as it does into the moment, with the intellectual arguments that you're making, and we get there. Now, can you imagine an alternative route to that. I
3: think it comes from two places. I agree with that. I agree with your crisis, you know, um, mm. Milton Friedman, you know, in a crisis the politicians look for the ideas mm. that are laying around mm. them. I think we have to prepare mm. the ground intellectually mm. and culturally for that moment I think there will be a crisis fairly soon into any change government. But the other thing is that when you put people together, which we do, that Compass does with its local mm. groups around the country, mm. and you put Labour together with Liberal Democrats and Greens and people from mm. no party, they find out pretty quickly that they agree on 80% of mm. stuff and they find out there isn't very much difference between yeah. them. If we can percolate that from the from the grassroots up, what we call the pitch invasion of politics, where we go, look, we agree on eighty percent of things. Let's flood the pitch. Let's push the kind of party bureaucrats out the way, and let's do something beautiful. If you can get that to coincide with your crisis moment, then I think we've got the fulcrum, pivotal point to do something really interesting with I mean, our political we, system.
1: We have had discussions, Sam and I, in this room, this very warm room, about you know policy tangles, really you know, thickets of of, of issues that that need, like we had Liz Kendall on to talk Mm. about um, social social care care and that's an area where parties did try to get together in government and get some cross-party working and it all fell apart I've had people on my radio show constantly saying why can't we get cross-party working on the health service because this is now a kind of national crisis Peter why is it that you talk about these moments of crisis we're arguably in these moments of crisis with the health service with social care and why is it that it seems to be beyond the wit of man and woman in Westminster to, to come together
0: yeah, I, uh, I, by crisis, um, you're right to pick me up, because all I should have made clear, when I said about crisis, I'm talking about a narrow Westminster crisis. I'm not talking about the Middle East or Ukraine or the health service or poverty. Or the, I'm talking about when there is a crisis of, of who's in charge in Westminster. In saying that, I'm, I'm as well admitting to the failure of our political culture that it takes that sort of crisis for something to happen rather than what's happening to real so people's lives. So it's a self-serving you know, it's, crisis. It's a, it's, it's a self-serving crisis. And it doesn't mean any pleasure to say, but I think the reality is it will need a self-serving crisis for something to big to happen. That may be an awful condemnation of our current political culture,
2: but I think that's where we are. C- can I ask, given we're starting to get into quite speculative territory, I would have a bit of speculation myself. Um, you know, the party that's in the most trouble at the moment, is obviously the Conservatives, mm. yeah, horrible mm. by-elections for them, Is there a path, and I appreciate it's probably quite a narrow path, where actually the Liberal Democrats become the opposition, the main opposition, because they start taking Tory seats in the home counties, which they will start to do uh, probably at the next election. The Tories get pulled further right by... Reform and GB News and Sweller Braverman and sort of that faction. So are you talking about dragging before them. the election? I'm talking election. about after, after the election. The election. So right. I'm saying they lose the election yeah. badly. Let's let's assume that yeah. the Liberal Democrats suddenly have a pool of home county seats in Ooh. Surrey, Oxfordshire, Hertfordshire, with a very different type of voter they perhaps get pulled a little bit more to the centre-right on economics, especially if Labour are forced to spend more money, put taxes up, which, you know, I suspect they probably will be. And you sort of get a shift where you get the Tories becoming almost a reform reform UKIP-style party, Mm. and Lib Dems becoming a kind of centre-right Liberal Party. Am I completely deluded here? Is there actually a path to that happening?
0: Uh, Is there a path? Yes. I mean, first past the post... Has sort of two, the two sides of the first past the post coin. Are firstly, that it is very, very hard to unseat an incumbent. It's happened only once in 200 years, which was essentially after the First World War when Labour replaced the Liberals as the anti Conservative Party. It's very hard to do. But the second point, the other side of the coin, is if and when it does happen, it, it happens ferociously and suddenly. Look at what happened in Scotland in 2015 when Labour went from 42 seats to one, mm-hmm. and the SNP went from one or seven seats to 56. Mm-hmm. So First Post, the post does have this quality that it is very, very solid until it becomes very, very brittle. So the essence of your question is, could one imagine the Conservatives disintegrating after the next election? I think the difficulty is that under First Past the post, even if the Conservative Party splits, whoever owns the Conservative Party brand, the name, the label, I find it hard to imagine them going below about 100 seats, even if you have a strong Faragist party. And the Lib Dems would have difficulty replacing that. But if it just goes a bit beyond that, then yes, you can. the Conservatives, what could happen to the Conservatives in England was what happened to Labour in Scotland eight years ago. So... Uh, I'm not sure I'd put a lot of money on it.
2: <laughs> I wouldn't. But is, is, it, is
0: it a zero percentage possibility? No, no. It, uh, it's, 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 it's a, a real possibility, not a very big into one. This
2: discussion just mm. because it the fact that the Lib dems are going to have a lot of these seats mm. that are quite economically quite centre right or certainly full of quite mm. a lot of rich people potentially makes the kind of thing you're talking mm. about Neil a bit, bit harder because Labour do still represent most of the poorest parts of the country. And if the Lib Dems start representing some of the richest parts of the country, it starts to get pulled apart. But well, I
3: think we're going to be in chaotic times. And I think that whatever happens in terms of representation in Parliament, and I think it could all move around really, really quickly in the kind of ways you've said, you could get regional parties, you could get kind of mayors establishing kind of new bases, you could get start-up parties, and that's why we favour proportional representation. Not because we think it's a panacea, but it unlocks that old sclerotic adversarial system and then opens it up to all the things like, you know, proper devolution, citizens' assemblies, all sorts of new forms of democracy, which will Enable us to begin to manage these chaotic it's times. My, my
2: worry is that in the countries that do have PR, that isn't happening either, and you're getting well, you know, it's, the same problems. No, that we have well, look
3: happening. at look at countries like Ireland that have developed, you know, that move off of PR and now use citizens' assemblies to to deal with the really difficult, knotty problems, you know, abortion and others that have bedevilled their country. Look, all of those countries you mentioned are probably old-style representative democracies. They may have PR or not. I'm not selling PR as, as the as the panacea. I'm saying it's the bit that unlocks our system that enables us to deepen democracy okay. to a 21st century level.
1: If Labour does win the next general election... If they have got in off the back of a lot of tactical voting, off the back of a lot of Liberal Democrats, you know, and everybody voting to get the Tories out, and they find themselves immediately plunged into crisis on a number of issues, which they probably will do, how are they going to politically navigate that without doing some collaboration?
0: Right. Look, I, th- I think the key thing is, and this is in a sense where Neil, there's an opening for Neil to, to get his, his, his wish, when Keir Starmer talks about 10 years and the needs for the time, I think he means it. And I think he's right. Because if you take the, the two, uh, 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 well, I would say there are many, many big issues, but the two specific issues of this time, the economy and Europe, there'll be no money to spend. They rightly say you need faster growth to get the money to spend, but you can't get the faster growth without a very much closer relationship with Europe. So, If you imagine a 10-year arc of Labour, it would be starting to do sensible things on the economy, but getting over two or three years, a frictionless trade back with Europe, which is the biggest single thing they could get the economy right. And that means after six, seven or eight years, we start to see better public services. We start perhaps to see lower taxes. Therefore, if they have a political crisis early on, the rational thing to do is say, what do we need to do now to maximise our chance of a decade in office? And those are the circumstances in which they might, depending on the precise common arithmetic, there might be some deal, not a coalition, but some set of practical deals to be done with the Liberal Democrats on specific issues, which might over time culturally develop into something in terms of a much happier, deeper relationship between Labour and the Liberal Democrats, which will not be as tidy as you and I, Neil, sitting down with a couple of Lib Dem friends with a blank piece of paper and saying, what does it look like? It'll be messier than that, but that might just be where we end up.
1: We've talked a lot about Labour finding some way to coexist with the Liberal Democrats and maybe even deepen their relationship over time. What about the SNP, Neil?
3: Well, it at one level it's difficult. Another level, look, I, I fundamentally believe that people should be sovereign. If it's going to be union it has to be a union of consent. I think if there is I think you have to work out what the barriers, you know, and the, the hurdles were. But over time if there is consistent polling lead for independence in Scotland, I think that's got to be recognised and legitimated in some way. And going back to that beyond the independence question, there is so much in common between the SNP, you know, the kind of social world that they want and the kind of social, more egalitarian world that Labour people want. It's ridiculous. Let's deal with that in constitutional question, but let's kind of work out what we have, you know, what we believe in the same. And I think there could be a lot in common.
0: Um, Look, we've got um, general election coming up within the next year or so. Then the Scottish, uh, Holyrood's Scottish uh, elections in 2026, there must now be a real chance that the SNP will do badly in the general election. And as a part of the consequential dynamics and trajectory of that, they lose power in Holyrood. In which case, I think, at least in my lifetime, Scottish independence is gone. I would personally expect Irish unity long before uh, Scottish independence.
2: So that was a really interesting discussion. I think my initial takeaway is that I don't think what Neil is talking about feels like a viable prospect, certainly before the election, probably not immediately after the election either. But I was quite taken by this idea of, That, you know, politics after a year or two of a potential Labour government could get really quite fractious and could go off in all sorts of directions, which potentially creates opportunities for things that have been very difficult to make happen in the past.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think there's any chance of Labour changing its position between now and the next general election. And why would they, right? Why would they? they? They're doing incredibly well at at the moment. They can make a a very powerful case to say, you know, bugger off everybody. We're the only show in town and we're we're knocking it out the park, by-election after by-election, so we don't need to cosy up to to people. And they can be very muscular about it. But what will be interesting is if there is a a Keir Starmer-led government. I think Keir Starmer, knowing him a bit, is somebody who I could imagine at a moment or a point of peril would definitely talk to other people. I think he's done a lot of talking to other people, even in his own political journey Mm. through the Labour Party. You know, he's also not from a faction himself. You know, he's not been kind of brought up as a creature of a faction in the Labour Party, which means I think, you know, there could be a chance that he could talk to, to more people. But I think one of the things people really underestimate is how intensely tribal the Labour Party is Mm. out of all the parties. The wider point that Neil did make, though, is an important one. There has got to be some point where if we all as progressives want change, it's how do you build that bigger project which kind of transcends tribal politics, which is an economic project, it's a cultural project, it's a philosophical project. That's what progressives are really bad at doing. The right is far better at coming together, doing deals, not getting everything they want, but getting power. The left and progressives are really bad at doing that. And
2: and I also think there's a point about the fact that social democracy in Europe is is really struggling uh, in a lot of countries, um, and when I talked about Germany uh, in the discussion, it shows the danger for Labour. I, I, you know, I think they'll get a big thumping win in the election. I think they'll do really well there. But they are not popular. They are just more popular than a very unpopular Tory party. And with the economic situation as it is, with so many crises taking over, you could easily see them being in a real mess within a couple of years, as, as has happened in Germany, as has happened in other countries. And it's what they do then to respond to that and how the stars are aligning at that point is going to be so critical. And we haven't seen their European sort of fellow parties dealing very well with that circumstance. So I, I hope somewhere in that machine someone is thinking about that situation and, and, and how to, to reach out in a different way to, to survive that.
1: Thanks for listening to The Paritest, and do get in touch. Really interested to know what you thought about this episode because we know that many of our listeners are not Labour members. Many of you come from different political traditions. It'll be really interesting to hear what you think about this idea of cross-party working, a bit more collaboration. You can tweet at The Paritest or email pod at theparatest.co.uk.
2: And we'll be back next week discussing the really interesting and critical issue of how Labour are going to navigate the media. So do join us then.